0: we <laughs> Welcome back to Ghostbusters Minute. Ghostbusters Minute is the fan podcast that chronicles and over-analyzes the classic 1984 film Ghostbusters Minute by Minute. I'm Kyle. I'm Brady. And we are here to bring you Minute Number 20 today. Brady, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How about you? I'm doing great. No time for chit-chat, though, because we have an extra-awesome Minute today, we don't do. we? A lot of
1: information. Yeah, this is
0: one of my favorite Minutes of the whole movie, Minute Number 20, um... You know we're we're gonna get into some really crazy stuff here. Uh, a lot of lore, a lot of production notes. It's this is a this has been a really fun one to put together so far.
1: Yeah, it really has. I mean, this is the introduction. You get to Zul. You get to see Gozer's uh, temple. You get to see the Ecto one finally make its entrance. Oh,
0: don't give everything away. All right, we got to save it for the audience. Sorry. Maybe they haven't seen the movie yet. No spoilers.
1: Right. So if you remember, in the last
0: minute, we saw Dana Barrett in her kitchen. She had just noticed some eggs had fried themselves on the counter and heard a low rumble coming from her refrigerator. So that's what we're picking up here. At minute number 20, Dana Barrett slowly walks towards her refrigerator to investigate the low growl coming from it. At 20 minutes, 6 seconds, Dana opens the refrigerator door. We can see some Parmesan cheese, mustard, crunchy peanut butter, stuff like that. At 20 minutes, 7 seconds, we see into the interdimensional cross rip for the first time inside Dana's fridge and see the Temple of Gozer presented as a purple staircase leading up to a see-through gate with a terror dog sitting atop the steps. Light is shooting out of the top of the pyramid as clouds surround the temple. At 20 minutes, 11 seconds, a terror dog's head pops into frame with flames behind it, and we hear in a low, booming voice, Zool. That was Zool for you out there. Light emanates from the terror dog's mouth. At 20 minutes, 13 seconds, Dana Barrett screams and slams the door shut. At 20 minutes, 16 seconds, we cut to the Ghostbusters firehouse and see a worker hanging a sign with a rather plain text reading Ghostbusters. Vankman asks the worker, Marty, if the sign is too subtle. Marty shakes his head no. At 20 minutes, 23 seconds, a siren is heard and Ray drives up in a black Ecto-1. Peter tells him, hey, you can't park here. A guy walks by with a piece of wood. (laughs) At 20 minutes, 38 seconds, Ray tells everyone to relax because he found the new car. Vankman looks at Ecto-1 with silent disdain. At 20 minutes, 39 seconds, Ray runs down a list of repairs needed. Suspension work, shocks, brakes, brake pads, steering, transmission, new rings, mufflers, and a little wiring for a grand total of $4,800. At 20 minutes, 51 seconds, we see the always fantastic Annie Potts as Janine Melnitz. At 20 minutes, 58 seconds, Peter asks Janine if they have received any calls or messages. Without taking her eyes off of her People magazine, she says, no. And thus ends minute number 20, like we said earlier, a lot going on in this minute, which is great because in the few previous minutes, uh, we had had some really fantastic comedy bits or some slow builds to some scary points, but not a whole lot was really going on story-wise. It was more set dressing, world building, stuff like that. Well, yeah. Not even world building, scene building, excuse me. This one, we, I guess the fa- fa- past few minutes just took all of their stuff and packed it into minute number 20. So, um,
1: what, What's funny is that Chris mentioned the guy walking by with a big plank of wood and something yeah. I'd, I'd never seen before. and. It's like I have no idea what the hell's going on because it's not just like a two-by-four. I mean, this is this massive, like, 25-foot stick that yeah. this guy's just walking in front of the firehouse with. He's going the
0: opposite direction of where all the, the yeah. stuff's being done, too, so, uh, which is, you know, sometimes on movies like this, the director will take somebody, uh, an extra that's standing by, and they'll say, all right, we need you just to do this because we just need action in the yeah, scene.
1: like uh, movement extras, yeah. I think is what it's called, but yeah. it's still like, hey— carry this big stick is.
0: and it's is it's a very important piece of filmmaking too because without all these people moving around in the background each other primary actors up in the front and it wouldn't look a
1: lot yeah and I mean I guess what it is saying is okay there's construction going on here yeah They're fixing this up and this is probably part of that whole movement so that's the
0: important thing the, oh, the yeah. takeaway from it is but this guy what he's doing with that large plank of wood I have no idea maybe he's going to another uh, production down we need the to street get some we need to get him on the
1: show I think so
0: yeah if we if you can if you know that guy or can find out who he is let us know yeah okay he's
1: probably our biggest listener too
0: so at the very end, Janine is reading a magazine, and uh, I found out which issue it is of People Magazine. Okay. What is it? it is the January 23rd, 1984 issue of People Magazine, and has Cher on the cover. Good That's, lord.
1: So that was pretty late in the game, I guess. Yeah.
0: So this was, um, usually that happens in movies. They do pickup shots sometimes. So maybe this was a pickup late, but this was, I guess, Ghostbusters came out in June. This was shooting in January. So it was six months of time, and no real, um,
1: That's true. Yeah. And there's, you know, it's not a big scene that they're going to have to go and drop in a bunch of special effects for. Exactly. No
0: effects shot, maybe a little bit of ADR, maybe some sound work going on, stuff like that. This would be an easy one to shoot in a day and just pop out. So, Uh, yeah. So. Let's get to the big stuff in this scene. One of the reasons this is my favorite scene, it does something that I absolutely love in movies, which it gives you a shot of something that there's no context for, that you have no way to quantify what you're seeing in front of you, and you just are awestruck in what you're seeing. Uh, The closest thing I can remember, or, or the best example I could imagine of this is, Basically, the last like 15 minutes of 2001: A Space Odyssey. Yeah, you know where he goes through the Stargate, and is uh, it's pretty clear that he's being transported across a distance of space. Mm-hmm. But what you're seeing, you have no idea what's going on. Especially like once he gets out of the of the warp of the Stargate, you see these like six diamonds that are like radiating in the sky, and you have no idea what they are. Yeah, because it causes you to speculate a lot, especially while you're sitting there in the theater. And this that's what happens when Dana Barrett opens a refrigerator. You see that pyramid, and we know that comes in later at the very end of the movie. That that's the Temple of Gozer. But we really don't have any idea what it is we're looking
1: at in the yeah. moment. We're like... And it's it's a really effective moment, especially with her scream, how it cuts. And you kind of hear an echo of her scream. I mean, it's yeah. jarring. And for this movie that, you know, we haven't really seen anything that dark. I mean, we've seen some stuff that's like kind of pushing it. But it's been a pretty, you know, fuzzy, light comedy so far. And then this is just like this... Yanks
0: jump. the rug out from yeah, underneath. Yeah, it really you.
1: does. I mean, it's unnerving the way the music builds up. The fact that you're seeing just this crazy thing you cannot identify. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's this big, uh, you know, alien creature mm-hmm. that is right up in your face. And he's you know, says Zool, although you can't really make out quite what it is at that yeah. point. And then her scream and slamming the fridge, it's really out of place. It really gets your attention.
0: How Dana Barrett was able to discern that he said Zool. Yeah, Excuse right? me, that she said Zool. Well, okay, so who is that? Do you think it's Vince Glortho or do you think it's Zool? Give me your thoughts on this. Okay.
1: I, this is another one of those things that, like, I've said so many times before in the show. it's It's that... You know, you grow up watching this movie, and uh-huh. you never really analyze it. You never really think about it because you're just enjoying it. And the lore and the backstory is stuff that I've never really put a lot of thought into, surprisingly. And
0: um, well, i have a lot of notes on that. We can get yeah, to yeah, that yeah, in a yeah, second.
1: Yeah. But the
0: the cutting of this scene uh, kind of bothered me a little bit, just because I couldn't put my wrap around, uh, wrap my head around like what they were trying to show me in terms of how this terror dog's head comes into view, right? I'll because we, okay. So we see the, the pyramid and the purple steps and you can clearly see that there is a terror dog sitting there. Well, I mean, we can clearly see it now cause we can walk up to a, you know, 60 inch TV and look at it up close and yeah, say, okay, right. so there's a terror dog. If you're sitting in the audience, you just kind of see this little blip moving back there. Right? So we know Vince Clortho and Zul are two, so, are two servants of Gozer, right? They're both have the form of a terror dog but we don't they're indiscernible between the two of them if you if you put the two of them side by side you couldn't pick out which one's Vince Clortho and which one's old they looking right. identical right so uh, i was wondering is this vince clortho the key master looking for Zool the gatekeeper and screaming Zool at like her, like, Hey, are her. you the gatekeeper Zool? Or was it Zool sending him saying like Zool? Like me. Yeah. Like I you know, every time I enter a room, I enter yell, Kyle. Yeah, exactly. Like that. I mean, yeah. Who doesn't? And the light shoots out of my mouth and you're like, oh, it's just him. It's just um, Yeah. Making an entrance. So is this Zool just come? going like a Zool walking is it Zul do that every time yeah. she walks into a room, <laughs> you know, like with or, arm outstretched?
1: Or is it Vince calling to her? Yeah. Yeah. Saying like you're up. You know?
0: But the other thing that bothers me about it is you see that terror dog in the background, and you kind of start to see it move a little bit, and then all of a sudden it cuts to this head coming up. Did that is that one popping up in front of her face? And it can't be because there's fire shooting out of behind its head, right? So we, we know in the movie it's just a hard cut to something because they wanted to show us, and right they wanted to show you up close what the terror dog was and kind of get a little bit of a jolt out of you. But as this is supposed to be taken from Dana Barrett's point of view. And that's the thing that bothers me. We're switching over to a character's direct line of eyesight, and when there's a hard cut to something else, I'm kind of confused as to did did the yeah. did the, did, the, did, the, did the portal she's looking through zoom all the way up, or did another terror dog, was it hanging out underneath the portal and jump up? <laughs> so, I've
1: always just kind of understood it to be, and this is just without having thought about it, mm-hmm. that that is a close-up of the terror dog that was on the temple steps in okay. the background. But it could very well be something that just raised right up in front of her.
0: I, I can accept that. It's just a little bit weird to go from yeah, such a character to, point of view... Yeah. And then, and then a zoom, uh, something like that. But you know, it's minor nitpicking. It's just something I've always kind of like tried to deal with. And in
1: that moment, the fact that you can't identify what's going on is probably what they intended. Yeah. Yeah. It
0: was just kind of to, to pull the rug out from under the audience, but the audience is still standing. Okay. So, um, do you know who Zool is? Let us know. Okay. Zul is... um, So I pulled a little bit of information from the Ghostbusters Wikia and also from Tobin's Spirit Guide. And and as we have found, there's a little bit of contradictory information on it. So I'm going to say, I'm putting my hand on the Tobin's Spirit Guide as it said this. This is as good as the Bible. So this is probably... The final word on everything, right? Okay. Okay, so, but I'm going to go ahead and... There might be a little bit of contradiction in what I'm reading here, but... Sure, Okay. So, Zul is a Class 6 entity who is a servant of Gozer the Destroyer. Uh, It was worshipped by the Mesopotamians, Sumerians, and Hittites in 6000 BC, along with Gozer. Zul is assumed to be female in nature due to it being known as, and I'm using quotes here, the gatekeeper. Read into that what you will. Now, Tobin's spirit guide, and this is the 2016 version, the commercial version is just put out, uh, the official version too, I might add, it lists both Zul and Vince Clortho as Class Seven fully corporeal possessors. The purpose of both Vince Clortho and Zul are to make way for the coming of Gozer. The true form of each is that of a terror dog. So, that does, does that make sense to you? Try and break it down a little okay. bit more. That would make Vins Glortho and Zul the right-hand man and woman of Gozer the Gozerian. So when go, when the time of the Destroyer to come is is here, in preparation for that, in, in order to open up the rift that actually brings Gozer into the world, both Vins Glortho and Zul have to assume form of whatever inhabitant of the world is there. Now, we know that I don't, it's not really said that if it's Earth or not, but later in the movie, Vince Clortho, when he's in the form of Louis Tully, is talking to Egon, and he talks about the—I'm going to have to read this because I can't pull it out of my mind. He talks about a couple different times that Gozer has come into form so in a So this has happened before. This has happened at least twice before that he talks about, right? Uh, the actual line is that during the third reconciliation of the last of the Meekrit supplements— they chose a new form for him, for Gozer, that of a giant slore. Many shubs and Zools knew what it was to be roasted in the depths of the slore that day, I can tell you. Now, I'll clarify that statement in a second. Zools, what he's talking about here, are different from Zool the entity. So we have Zool the terror dog, right? And then Zools as a species. So when he refers to Zools and Shubs, he might not necessarily be talking about human beings or earthlings. He might be talking about plant creatures on the planet Klo Klo okay. or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh so but they were roasted in the belly of a giant slore, which is another like Um, whenever Gozer chooses to come or comes at the end of the movie as the the destructor, which is the step off Marshmallow Man, Mm -hmm. previously became as something called a slore, which is a giant eyeless monster that has a belly that's like a constant furnace. So it ate all the shubs and the zools and burned them alive. So, (sighs) yeah. Um, So anyway, so each time Gozer comes into being the pathway has, the gate has to be opened by Vince Clortho and Zool as they assume whatever race inhabits inhabitants of excuse me whatever race inhabits that world and they have to come together and mate in order to open the the portal for Zul uh, for Gozer to come through yeah i <laughs> my uh reading of all that I know I mistaked a lot of words there so let me just make that clear one more time yeah. Vince Clortho and Zul have to come together and mate in order to open the portal which brings Gozer into the world okay okay so that's who Zul is, kind of like a high priest of Gozer. Yeah, yeah. It's a little bit wonky when it looks like a giant shaved rat bear, right? But mm-hmm. it's actually supposed to be a priest, but that's that's who Zul is. And the voice that says Zul, it's actually Ivan Reitman. So I know that, okay, so there's a lot of stuff about Zul. It's a big lore info dump. I know that I did my part in doing that, and I know you were knee-deep in facts <laughs> Ecto-1. on Ecto-1, the fifth Ghostbuster. Well,
1: before we get to that, um, you, you've got to wonder... At just how much of Dan Aykroyd's idea was reshaped by Harold Ramis and Ivan Reitman, and they had to sca- they had to say like, okay, 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 let's come back. How successful do you think this movie would have been if it had been all of this, all all of this, um, you know, l- uh, lore and background and all these.
0: Think about how confusing it was when I just read it here a second ago. Uh, yeah. Now imagine that stretched over like a two-hour movie, and then the depth and you know I all mean, that.
1: It's, it's impossible for us to say. Just like it's impossible for us to say if John Belushi would have been a better Peter Venkman um, than Bill Murray. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll who, say this:
0: Ghostbusters is a is a character-driven comedy. Mm-hmm. That's what it is, and it's got this great backstory backing it up with all this science fiction, weird Ghostbusters stuff. But the thing that makes it great is it's about characters. Colorful right. characters yeah. and dry humor, so. and that's
1: what that's where the the lasting staying power of this movie comes from. I think, yeah, is is the comp, is the side that wasn't all Dan Aykroyd, um, but it's it wouldn't have been there at all if it wasn't for these types of ideas and backstories and lore and things like that. Um, Do you know about
0: the reverse pyramid or no? Another reverse pyramid, the um, iceberg theory of screenplay writing. No, so you know how an iceberg works. How you just see a little bit coming out of the top of yeah. the water, but there's a gigantic, massive, like five story portion of ice underneath it so when you're writing a screenplay usually you write a huge backstory for yourself to draw from from your characters when you make up a character like Peter Vankman you write you might write this whole backstory about him wanting to go to college to be an engineer and then finding out it's not trains yeah and that pushes him into being a con man or whatever but the audience doesn't know all that Just like the iceberg, they only see the part that is above water. Yeah. But all that other stuff is important to be there because you need it when you're writing and shaping the world and character. So when the lore and all that stuff comes into play, they have to write like what's called a Bible. So they'll take all of these great grand ideas and they'll write them down in something and say, Hey, this is stuff we're going to draw from, but this stuff is never actually going to be in the movie. And part of the reason is because a lot of that stuff would be so dense and weird and esoteric Mm -hmm. like the stuff we just
1: talked about. And that Bible becomes something like Tobin's Spirit Guide, which... It's such a great resource. But every
0: now and then you can get a little peer into that, like Mm -hmm. through Dana's fridge. And it's so interesting because you can't really wrap your head around what exactly it is you're seeing in a short amount of time.
1: And that's what I love about that is the filmmakers are saying, okay, viewer, you know, if you really enjoyed this little snippet, it's all out there. So go investigate and find out more about this movie. And uh, I can't think, what are some other examples of movies that have have done that, showing you the, the tip of the iceberg, but there's so much more there for a fan of the movie to go explore and find out? Prometheus.
0: I think okay, Prometheus yeah. is loaded with stuff. Now, you can say that it was just art direction that, you know, a lot has been said about Prometheus. I, I loved the movie mm-hmm. because it gave me all these little uh, breadcrumbs to follow that, you know, th- there's no real follow through on them in the movie, but it leads you to speculate. Like, there's this, this green crystal. Do you remember that? They walk into the engineer room with all the ampules on the floor and there's a, a like, a bas relief on the wall. And yeah. It looks like a xenomorph, like a crucified position. Yeah. And there's this green crystal. And they walk up, I think, uh, was it Holloway? I I, I forget the guy's name. Anyway, dude walks up and shines a flashlight on it. And you can see through it. And it's in this position in front of the bass relief, like it's something important. They never explain what it is. Hmm. So... I just have to speculate. I have to be like, okay, was there an idea for this? Is there yeah. something I'm supposed to read into? Like, why are the engineers almost worshiping the xenomorph on the wall in like a
1: Christ-like position? See, you that's, know, the thing is, I hope that those answers are out there for a fan like you to go find out if you want to. That was the thing about like the space jockey and Alien, um, which, you know, it's it's a it's a perfect example of how. A filmmaker will drop something like this into a movie. Hey, if you want to go find out what that is, go explore. Right. Uh, You know, Personally, I know we disagree on it, but I never wanted to know where the space jockey comes from. But if you do, Prometheus. It's right there for you. And then there's even stuff about, I mean, who who knows where we'll see those ideas go in Alien Covenant. Mm -hmm. Or future Prometheus-centered movies or something like that. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I love it when movies do that. They don't jam it all down your throat. They say, here's a little bit. You know, take it from there. Yeah. And ma- even make your own headcanon if you want.
0: Or like the end of 2001 where there have been like, you know, full research papers written on like, yeah. what is that like supposed to mean? People devoted
1: their lives to try and figure out what the hell it's supposed to mean and yeah. that's awesome. And
0: Stanley Kubrick might not have had any intention to yeah. him yeah. and Arthur C. Clarke might have been like, oh, you know, there's, there's nothing behind this, but... It, it it works because you don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. And it works here because you don't have any time to figure out, like, why is, this, is there a purple floating pyramid and light show? Oh, God, it's scenes over, yeah. you know? Like, it, that's why it works.
1: Now, do you know the story behind how, I think it was in, like, test screenings. They had uh, the whole scene play out with the music and everything. But as soon as it was, it was going to cut to the Dog saying, Zool, it had a black screen with some text saying like scene missing or clip oh. missing and people still like screened in the audience. Oh, did they, they really? It was more effective. Yeah. <laughs> so. But anyway, well, let's get on to.
0: Yeah. Tell me a little bit about Ecto-1 because yeah. I really don't know much about it. Ecto- so is, is that car
1: an ambulance or is it a hearse? It is actually both. Oh, it's, really? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. So let's see. Yeah. No, Ecto-1 is actually a 1959 Cadillac chassis, which is built by the Miller Meteor Company. It was actually originally going to be based on a 1975 Cadillac. Dan Aykroyd's original idea was that it was going to be all black, but cinematographer Laszlo Kovacs pointed out that it wouldn't photograph that well at night, so they went with white. So Stephen Dane was the guy who was hired to basically put the whole thing together. So he was hired by Ivan Reitman to just go out and make the Ecto-1 and take all the designs, all the concepts, and just make it happen. So he began his work in October of 1983, and after gathering some measurements and a general layout of the car that they were going to go with, he began to put all the hardware on, all the Ghostbusters, you know, bells and whistles under the roof rack and what have you. And then after Ivan Reitman approved it, Dane and his craftsmen went to work. And the finished product isn't an exact duplicate of what they had actually come up with. Uh, Initially, the Proton Packs were going to, like, hang down and... What we see in the final movie is that the, they slide out of the back and they're kind of like, you know, able for the ghosts to just pick them right up and put them on their backs. Right. And the car was actually famous for always breaking down while they were shooting. They would, you know, get their cameras set up and everything and then have it come around a corner and immediately would die. So it's kind of like the shark in Jaws. What you see was like the only working footage they have of it. <laughs> and uh, there's actually some hilarious moments in the movie. I think there's one where it, it makes a corner in the montage. And one of the headlights turns on as as it's making the corner, and you just hear it like backfiring and everything. It's uh, it brings a lot of character to the movie, and I think the thing that works so well about it is the fact that it is um, like the Millennium Falcon. It's kind of a you know just held together by it's it's a bucket of bolts, basically.
0: Yeah, it has a lot of character and personality. That's
1: right, and um, it's like I've said before in the movie, like the Ghostbusters are treated like uh, superheroes, and this is sort of their Batmobile. Just like the proton packs and everything would be their, I don't know, batarang.
0: Yeah, it kind of adds to the whole, like, everything is held together by duct tape nature of what the Ghostbusters are. You know, it gives a lot of personality and character.
1: And there's a ton more information about Ecto-1 that I'm going to get into later on uh, down the line. Because there's just so much. It's way too much to pack into this, into one episode.
0: I might have mentioned it on the show, but I was in Pittsburgh a couple weeks ago. And uh, this was actually on the same day that the movie came out. Oh, yeah. and uh, I was we were driving around and I turned a corner and the uh, Steel City Ghostbusters yeah. had their version of the Ecto-1 out they were just on a corner in the University of Pittsburgh area like near the quad with like, the siren going right? it, with the yeah. siren going they were just shaking hands with people and taking pictures these, you know again uh, some of these groups out in the country that uh, people make their own Ghostbusters costumes and uh, yeah. get these cars and uh, make them look like Ecto-1 and drive them around to different charities and stuff like that but I walked up as they were driving away and I God, wanted to yell and I'm so like cool. hey Ghostbusters minute that's me and of course they would have been like <laughs> what are you know but anyway they I, I tweeted at them later they, they were really cool dudes but Get away um,
1: from the car sir it
0: was so close but it was so awesome and uh you know one
1: thing i love about ecto-1 is all that crap on top of the car yeah the roof rack yeah and uh, you know all of that has a purpose dan Ak- it's all of it's like according to the story anyway has like a, a working reason behind it and dan Aykroyd mm-hmm. put thought into every little bit of hardware that's on and inside of the car So I would love to just pick his brain sometime and point at a random thing on the roof rack and say, okay, what is this for? Or something inside, like, what what does this do? And you know that he would just have... You know, dissertation on every little detail of it. So
0: I loved in the 2016 Ghostbusters how they actually paid that off. You know that it wasn't mentioned in the other movies. Remember, it was kind of at the very end of the movie. It was a,
1: oh, a where core, it came from? Yeah. Yeah, 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 Well, it was a
0: core purpose for it being there. You know, yeah. And yeah. then, did you ever play the Ghostbusters like Atari or like Amiga game? It
1: was a little before my time. Okay, the but best, I know what you're talking about. The
0: best part about it is you turn on this voice and it
1: goes
0: Ghostbusters like that. Yeah, but you could actually buy. You had to trick out your Ecto one. One cool thing is that. The beginning of the movie, you take out a loan from a bank for like ten thousand dollars, and you mm-hmm. have to buy ghost equipment with it. And one of the things they put on top of the car is a vacuum cleaner that sucks up ghosts. Really? So they'll have like a little mini game where you're trying to drive to a building to catch a to catch a slimer or a ghost or whatever. And there's like a three lanes on the street, and you can see with my hand what I'm doing. The car like goes between the different lanes, yeah. and ghosts will come down. And you have to like grab the ghost with the vacuum cleaner. So
1: one of the stages in the game is taking out a loan from the bank. Yes. That's yeah.
0: And you know, awesome. what? it's part of the best part part of the game. There was an iOS game that came out a few years ago, an iPhone game for Ghostbusters. Mm-hmm. And it had a lot of potential, but it was all business management. It really? was kind of a remake of that game where you
1: you had loans and you had to make money and pay them back and stuff like that. See, that's so funny because that's like stuff I, you know, believe you would get out of this movie. Taking mm-hmm. out, that's part of their mission in the movie is like finding the capital to, to get the building and yeah. all of that. So it's, it makes sense that it would be in a video game about it. Now, is that the same, the Atari one, is that the same one that you never actually achieved anything because it took too long for you to get back to your well, that that was part of the challenge of the game was you Wait, had to get back and forth or something, right?
0: well no I think you could actually good finish it there's there's YouTube videos of like playthroughs of people playing it because I, I was never good enough I, I love video games but I suck at them so <laughs> uh, you know well they were a lot harder in the day too ba- back in the day they're a lot easier now these kids don't know how good they have it but um, <laughs> I could never get anywhere in the game I could hardly bust my first ghost but it yeah. was cool because you know it had a recreation of the song like <laughs> like that you know in those you um, got to find that yeah it's, it's great it's, it's a lot of fun to watch but it, the whole game can be beaten in like 35 minutes if you know what you're doing but it's it's very repetitive there's only like three things to the game and you have there's like a symbol of a key on this grid that's supposed to be the city and a symbol of like a gate and you have to basically as soon as those get together that means that stay puffs coming oh really? and i think stay wow. puff comes back and you have to like zap him or something like that and yeah so huh. it's I, I don't know i never got that far in the game but it, it was fun but again the best part is the very beginning <laughs> <I'm>
1: like, <laughs> we gotta find it yeah dana's fridge was it a Pella. That's right. I looked into it because you can see the logo inside of the fridge, yeah. and I couldn't tell if it said Pella or Bell or something. It's
0: it's a P and either two L's or two T's yeah. with an either an E and an A or an A or an E or an I or E or something Listeners, like that. Listeners,
1: if somebody knows, hit us up on Facebook. But
0: I will say it was fabulous with... We might have talked about this on, uh, I think, with uh, Christopher Stewart, but it had fake wood paneling on the inside oh, of yeah, it, man. which is just, God, the 80s the were so, yeah. fake wood paneling everywhere, the everywhere. 70s and the 80s, so, <laughs> it's a, that's a classy fridge. If you went to someone's house and you open the fridge and there's, they're rich enough to put wood paneling in the yeah. inside, you have to be like, well, these people really have it going on. Oh,
1: wow, you could afford a Pella. Look nice. at this.
0: They, they put their peanut butter in the fridge for okay. some reason. That okay, that was another thing, too. Yeah. Was,
1: what was it, cottage cheese or something? The, or? Well, there's Parmesan, Parmesan cheese, cheese, which usually
0: you don't put in the fridge. And peanut butter. And the Parmesan cheese cheese is in that green like label yeah. like they had in the 80s and it's turned just to the side but you can tell what it is it's some mustard like French's mustard behind it and then who keeps peanut butter in the fridge
1: I don't know I
0: don't know. Yeah, Dana Barrett, apparently. So, that scene where she opens the fridge is so well done. The the clouds, you know, that 80s effect, like the never ending story is nothing, you know? Which, so do you know how that's achieved? I don't, but I know that it's,
1: you know, kind of been out of date since the days of uh, CGI coming back in. And then, did you ever see The Tree of Life, Terrence Malick's movie from a few years ago? No, I didn't, but I know what you're talking about. uh, Employed a lot of those effects Mm. for some of the um, sequences in the movie. So, it's cool. Well, it's kind of like,
0: again, like the 2001 uh, uh, Stargate scene. I think they did the same thing where, like, dropping color into in, in water, water yeah. and then like smashing it underneath a, like plane of glass or something like that to get it to spread. And this looked like maybe like colored water into a tank of water
1: and being projected. Yeah. So. Which you saw all over the place in the eighties, like the in guys when the dark uh-huh. clouds are coming in. All yeah, that yeah, it's always like in fantasy movies, like die yeah.
0: uh, in the clouds and uh, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> we'll see that a couple more times here in the movie. And um, yeah. So anyway, again, absolutely love this scene. We're getting into the stuff now we're getting into the real paranormal. Yeah.
1: You know, all of our characters introduced and yeah all of the everything built up
0: well not all of our characters not not all of them the king is still yet to be introduced oh that is true yes very much yes uh so but anyway all right we're done yeah so all right everybody great well uh thank you so much for joining us uh we will see you again i'm kyle i'm brady and we're here to remind you that death is but a door
1: time a window we will be back Ghostbusters Minute is a fan-supported podcast. To become a patron of Ghostbusters Minute and gain access to exclusive weekly bonus content, visit us at patreon.com slash If you like the podcast, then leave us a review on iTunes. You can contact us at ghostbustersminute at gmail.com and visit us online at ghostbustersminute.com, facebook.com ghostbustersminute, twitter.com gbminute and look us up on Instagram at Ghostbusters Minute. Our theme song is Ectoplasm by Nautics, which is licensed under the Creative Commons Attributions License.